Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 13, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from the reading for today's discussion on the Cratylus, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts in today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So today we'll cover the second of three parts from 400D to 421B of Plato's Cratylus, the dialogue and the origin of the names that we apply to things and their meaning that evolves in language over time. We began the Cratylus two weeks ago by considering a broad definition of thing as an object of thought. And the question arose in our discussion whether there are rules that apply to objects of thought. Socrates states that there are rule setters whose expert craft it is to establish names of things. And he says there are dialecticians who look to first principles of a thing to supervise the rule setters. These were contentious points, and it made me wonder what Plato meant by the word rule. To explore what a rule is, we'll begin today's discussion with another clip from the Lex Friedman podcast interview of renowned mathematical physicist Sir Roger Penrose. In this segment, Penrose emphasizes the importance of understanding to knowledge, and he concludes that understanding why the rules give you truths enables you to transcend the rules. We might consider Penrose's words in the context of the word rule as translated from the ancient Greek word nomos, which implies a division. To my thinking, it seems logical that division cannot occur unless there are two limits to the thing that is being divided. One of the limits is the beginning of the thing, and the other is the end of the thing. And these two limits define the thing as different from any other thing. Division requires difference and creates more difference. At the beginning of today's reading, Socrates introduces the doctrine of Heraclitus, that things are all flowing and that nothing stands fast. This doctrine, implying perpetual difference, seems to lurk in the background of the remainder of the dialogue as Socrates discusses the connection of names to motion. He begins with an examination of the names of gods, which humans appear to have derived from a perspective of unending motion. Then he proceeds to consider the ways that many other names connect to our perception of motion. We should recall Plato's definition of motion in the Theotetus as either a change in spatial position, which is the way we normally think of motion, or a change in state, such as water freezing to ice. In the Cratylus, Socrates states that wisdom is the understanding of motion. What does he mean by this? So if understanding of motion is necessary to wisdom, then perhaps we need to consider both the naturalist approach to names, which is to look at the origin of things in nature without regard to human usage, and the conventionalist approach that considers the different way humans apply names to things over time. Socrates alludes to this in today's reading, and in our next episode, we'll see his conclusion on the matter. As one participant noted at the end of our last episode, humans are creatures of nature with their own conventions. So after we listened to Roger Penrose, I thought we could return to the question we left off with in our last episode, which is whether man is the measure of things 
and how wisdom would be possible if that were the case. If we adopt the doctrine of Heraclitus, that everything is in motion so that the same thing never occurs more than once, many questions seem to arise. Among them, one, how would logic in such a configuration operate in the absence of a permanent connection between objects of thought? Would randomness supersede logic? Two, is it possible that rules or divisions or limits could exist in a Heraclitian system? Three, if there are no fixed limits to things because everything is in a fluid flux, how is it possible for the mind to attain knowledge or an accurate account of one thing or any combination of things? And four, is it possible to distinguish wisdom from foolishness when everything is in flux? So there's a connection between these questions and our technology, specifically the GPT-3 technology that I spoke of last time that seeks to emulate human speech. Interestingly, an article on a book review written by GPT-3 appeared in this morning's New York Times, which I'll show now briefly on the screen to emphasize the importance of Plato's Cratylus to today's technology. And then let's listen to Roger Penrose and think about how we understand rules and things. And I'll just show you very briefly this article in the New York Times entitled, A Robot Wrote This Book Review. And it's a book review of a new book by Henry Kissinger uh, and a few other writers. And the article writer is making the point that GPT-3 technology wrote part of a book review. He fired up the technology, as he says, and the app uses GPT-3, the cutting-edge AI system, which acts as a kind of turbocharged version of Gmail's autocomplete feature. And he says he pasted the first few paragraphs of the review that he wrote into the software and asked the software to finish. And here's what it wrote, he says. So this is the part in italics. And you can see that it's actually coherent, seems to be relevant to the book. Now, then he makes a few notes. He says, first, the AI wasn't an unqualified success. So in its use of words, it spit out a series of run-on sentences. Then a few tries later, it seemed to give up on the task of book reviewing altogether and started merely listing the names of tech companies. But then he says, it warmed up quickly. And within a few minutes, the AI was coming up with impressively cogent paragraphs of analysis. Some, frankly, better than what I could have generated on my own. And so I show this as a way of illustrating the importance of Plato's Cratylus to our modern technology. And this is what I, uh, a point that I was trying to make in the last episode, that there is a current technological relevance of understanding the names that we apply to things when things are objects of thought. And so I, that, I just showed that to illustrate that. So let me then share my screen again. And I wanted to show this clip of Roger Penrose because in the last episode, we talked about rules and rule setting and supervising rule setters, but there was some contention as to what exactly a rule is with respect to a name or the word we apply to a thing and then how supervision can happen. And we'll see in today's reading that there is some clarification on that. But I really thought this segment from Roger Penrose, uh, the Lex Friedman interview of Roger Penrose, really hit the mark on a few things. Penrose makes the point that understanding is very important to him in arriving at meaning, that we have to understand. And understanding, he says, requires an understanding of rules and then transcending the rules. So again, this interview uh, was on the subject of Penrose's book, in which Penrose says that the mind is not a calculating device or not just purely a calculating device. So there's that in the background. And this, in this particular clip, he's talking about some courses that he attended and what he heard at these courses. And so let me just share this. 
And we'll listen to just a few minutes of Roger Penrose here. Never got excited about anything, seemingly. <laughs> and, uh, but it was extremely well put together, and I've, I found that amazing too. Third course that was nothing to do with what I should be doing was a course on mathematical logic. I got, as I say, my, my discussions with the Ian Percival. Was the incompleteness theorem already deeply within mathematical logic space? Was, was Were you introduced? I was to... introduced to it in detail by the course by, by Steen. And he, it was two things he described which were very fundamental to my understanding. One was Turing machines and the whole idea of computability and all that. So that was all very much part of the course. The other one was the Gödel theorem. And it wasn't what I was afraid it was, to tell you there were things in mathematics you couldn't prove. It was, basically, and he phrased it in a way which often people didn't. And if you read Douglas Hoff's status book, he doesn't, you see. But Steen made it very clear, and also in a, in a sort of public lecture that he gave to a mathematical, I think it may be the Adams Society, one of the mathematical undergraduate societies, and he made this point again very clearly, that if you've got a formal system of proof, so suppose what you mean by proof is something which you could check with a computer. So to say whether you've got it right or not, you've got a lot of steps, have you carried this computational procedure, well, following the proof, steps of the proof correctly, that can be checked by a, an algorithm, by, by a computer. So that's the key thing. Now what you have to now you see is it, is this any good if you've got a, a, an algorithmic system which claims to say yes this is right this you've proved it correctly this is true if you've proved it if you made a mistake it doesn't say it's true or false but if you have if you've done it right then the conclusion you've come to is correct. Now you say why do you believe it's correct? Because you've looked at the rules and you said, well, okay, that one's all right. Yeah, that one's all right. What about that? Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, I see. I see why it's all right. Okay. You go through all the rules. You say, yes, following those rules, if it says, yes, it's true, it is true. So you've got to make sure that these rules are ones that you trust. Is, if you follow the rules and it says it's a proof, is the result actually true? Right. And that your belief that it's true depends upon looking at the rules and understanding them. Now, what Gödel shows that if you have such a system, then you can construct a statement of the very kind that it's supposed to look at, a mathematical statement, and you can see by the way it's constructed and what it means that it's true, but not provable by the rules that you've been given. And it depends on your trust in the rules. Do you believe that the rules only give you truths? If you believe the rules only give you truths, then you believe this other statement is also true. I found this absolutely mind-blowing. When I saw this, it blew my, you know, blew my mind. Mm. I thought, my God, you can see that this statement is true. It's as good as any proof, because it only depends on your belief in the reliability of the proof procedure, that's all it is, and understanding that the coding is done correctly and it enables you to transcend that system. So whatever system you have, as long as you can understand what it's doing and why you believe it only gives you truths, then you can see beyond that system. Now how do you see beyond it? What is it that 
enables you to transcend that system? Well, it's your understanding of what the system is actually saying and what the statement that you've constructed is actually saying. So it's this quality of understanding, whatever it is, which is not governed by rules. It's not a computational procedure. So this idea of understanding is not going to be within the rules of the, the, the within the formal system. Yes, you're only using those rules anyway, yeah. because you have understood them to be rules which only give you truth. There'd be no point in it otherwise. I mean, people say, well, okay, this is uh, one set of rules as good as any other. Well, it's not true, you see. You have to understand what the rules mean. And why does that understanding of the mean give you something beyond the rules themselves? And that's that's what it was. That's what blew my mind. It's somehow understanding why the rules give you truths enables you to transcend the rules. Well, thank you for listening to that. And um, I wonder what we think of what Penrose just said with respect to what we talked about two weeks ago and the rules of setting names. The idea that we can transcend the rules if we understand the nature of the system, which I think is what Penrose was saying. Uh, now, he was talking about Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which we've also talked about in this podcast before, that there are some theories that cannot be proven. I just wonder how that affects our thinking or, or does that help our thinking with respect to the rules in name setting. In other words, when we establish a name or when a name is established for a thing and we apply that name or the name changes over time, how is it important to understand the rules that were applied in setting that name? And are we part of that rule setting system? Just wondering if there are any thoughts on that. And then to go into the idea of, uh, you know, as I said in the introduction of the Heraclitean system, where if we believe in that doctrine that all things are fluid and nothing remains fixed, is it possible to have a rule in such a system? And that's certainly a theme that continues throughout this dialogue. The idea of motion and Plato playing on the idea of Heraclitus's uh, doctrine that everything is in flux. In Plato's conception, things aren't in flux, that there's this realm of being, which is permanent, unchanging, and that's where the forms of things are. Are there any thoughts on that in particular? We can maybe consider that as we look at today's readings. There was one section that I wanted to start with, and that's at the beginning of today's section that we're reading, 401A to B. Let me just put this on the screen. The part where Socrates starts talking about the gods. And so the gods are in the realm of being. They're not in the realm of becoming. There's really two parts to today's reading. Socrates starts off by addressing the realm of being, where the gods are. And he looks at the way that the names of the gods have been established. The names of the gods have been established by humans who are in the realm of becoming, which is different from the realm of being. So just again, the Platonic idea of being is that changeless timeless existence that we don't occupy as human beings in our bodies. Our bodies occupy the realm of becoming, which is that constantly changing realm that never establishes a fixed limit. Whereas in the realm of being, that's where we find the fixed limits. So I just will call to attention 401A to B, where Socrates says, if it's all right with you, let's begin our investigation by first announcing to the gods that we will not be investigating them since we do not regard ourselves as worthy to conduct such an investigation, but rather human beings and the beliefs they had in giving the gods their name. Shall we begin, as is customary, with Hestia? So Hestia is a god. And this is just to point out that Socrates isn't attempting to 
investigate the powers of the gods or whether these understanding of the gods is is correct. He's just trying to understand the mindset of the humans who establish the names for the gods, uh, starting with the god Hestia. If we would have a volunteer to read, this is a, a part from 401b to 402c, I could do Socrates if somebody would be willing to do Hermogenes in this part. This just takes us through some of the process by which humans establish the names of things. So Socrates is giving the etymology of the name. I could do Hermogenes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. All right. So I'll start with Socrates. At 401b, Socrates says, at any rate, Hermogenes, the first name givers weren't ordinary people, but lofty thinkers and subtle reasoners. What of it? Well, it's obvious to me that it was people of this sort who gave things names. For even if one investigates names foreign to Attic Greek, it is equally easy to discover what they mean. In the case of what we in Attic call usia, which is English being, for example, some call it esia, and others osia. First, then, it is reasonable, according to the second of these names, to call the being or essence, which is Greek usia, of things hestia. Besides, we ourselves say that what partakes of being is, translated to Greek as hestin, so being is also correctly called hestia for this reason. We even seem to have called being esia in ancient times. And if one has sacrifices in mind, one will realize that the name givers themselves understood matters in this way. For anyone who called the being or essence of all things Essia would naturally sacrifice to Hestia before all the other gods. On the other hand, those who use the name Osia seem to agree pretty much with Heraclitus's doctrine that the things that are are all flowing and that nothing stands fast. For the cause and originator of them is then the pusher, which is the Greek Uthon, and so is well-named Osia. But that's enough for us to say about this, since we know nothing. After Hestia, it is right to investigate Rhea and Cronus, though we've already discussed the latter's name. Now, maybe what I'm about to tell you is nonsense. Why do you say that, Socrates? Because I've got a whole swarm of wisdom in my mind. What sort of wisdom? It sounds completely absurd, yet it seems to me to have something very plausible about it. How so? I seem to see Heraclitus spouting some ancient bits of wisdom that Homer also tells us. Wisdom as old as the days of Cronus and Rhea. What are you referring to? Heraclitus says something that everything gives way and nothing stands fast. And, likening the things that are to the flowing, which is the Greek roe of a river, he says that you cannot step into the same river twice. So he does. Well then, don't you think that whoever gave the names Rhea and Cronus to the ancestors of the other gods understood things in the same way as Heraclitus? Or do you think he gave them both the names of streams, which is Greek rheumata, merely by chance? Similarly, Homer speaks of ocean, origin of the gods and their mother Tethys. I think Hesiod said much the same. Orpheus too says somewhere that fair flowing ocean was the first to marry, and he wedded his sister, the daughter of his mother. See how they agree with each other, and how they all lean towards the doctrines of Heraclitus. I think there's something in what you say, Socrates, but I don't understand what the name Tethys means. But it practically tells you itself that it is the slightly disguised name of a spring. After all, what is strained, Greek diatomenon, and filtered, ethumenon, is like a spring. 
Now the name Tethys is a compound of these two names. That's elegant, Socrates. Well, thank you, Jane, for reading that. And I thought this would be good to introduce the idea of Heraclitus, um, that everything is flowing, uh, nothing remains fixed. Uh, that would seem to negate the idea of being, which in Plato's system is that permanent state which never changes and that that's not the state that our bodies occupy our bodies occupy the state of becoming which is constantly changing but our minds in the platonic view occupy the realm of being which is is timeless and i thought this would be a good way to illustrate this but also to illustrate the point that what he's saying i think is that names tend to be established with reference to motion and i wonder why we think that's important or why we think that would be the case. Do you think that names are established with respect to motion? In other words, what happens to things over time? And what do we make of this system of Heraclitus? One thing I, I noted was this idea of swarm of wisdom, which I, was interesting when Socrates says, because I've got a whole swarm of wisdom in my mind. The word swarm he also used in the Mino when he was asking for an example of virtue and many examples were given. And so he says, I asked for one definition of virtue, but you gave me a whole swarm of them. In this case, I thought it was an interesting use of that term. And that's one of the questions I asked in the introduction, in that, is it possible in a system such as Heraclitus proposes, where nothing is permanent, everything is just simply flowing, and there's no connections between things necessarily, is it possible to have wisdom in such a system? Is it, is it possible for logic to form in such a system in which there's just this continuous flux? Or does logic and wisdom require necessarily some sort of connection between things? Any thoughts on that or on any other parts of, uh, of this section? Jane? There's a lot of questions, um, and they're all... <laughs> Very not easy to answer, but I just wanted to, uh, regarding uh, sort of um, Heraclitus philosophy, from if I remember correctly, he, he holds the viewpoint of constant becoming. Uh, if I remember correctly, the, the world is sort of imagined as uh, this one burning flame. So sort of the topic of the one and the many is touched upon in the philosophy of Heraclitus. And so there is this one flame, which sometimes burns ex extremely brightly, and then it can almost disappear. And so you have this sort of dialectics going on, and it is a constant state of becoming, but there is this one single source. And I, I guess based on that sort of philosophical interpretation, it could be said that the Heraclitus approach doesn't necessarily discard the idea of there being a being. And so this sort of state of becoming, it's, it's something that we are observing on a day-to-day -day basis, but there is sort of this one state of being that is fundamental and essential. It is just not noticeable to the mortal eye if you are being superficial about your observations. Yeah, that, that's not very well worded, but mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, thank you. And that's really helpful. Thank you for that. And uh, I think that that helps to clarify some of that or some of the Heraclitian idea. But 
I'm wondering then does that single source, that the source of that flame, if it never establishes any limits or rules, because I'm, I'm proposing, I guess, that we talk about what a rule is. Uh, what do we understand by rule when Plato or Socrates says that there are rules to establishing names? What do, what do we understand by the word rule? And that's where, when I tried to look at the original Greek, I came out with the word nomos, which implies division. So if we have rules, that means that there are limits that we divide things by, and these limits differentiate one thing from another thing. And the rule really, I think, is maybe a form of measurement. And in the Heraclitian system, even if there's a single source, does that give us a basis by which to measure if that source never never establishes any permanent limits? I guess that's one thing I'm, I'm wondering about. And I don't know, you know, Jane, whether you have any more thoughts on that in terms of what you said, or if anybody else has any thoughts on that. And, and you know, philosophically, what do we think of a such a system as Heraclitus proposes? Go to Darren. There seems to be a problem. I think this is related to the paradox of learning, Mino's paradox. I think that's what's called the paradox of learning in the Mino. If we're trying to find a truth about something, it seems like we must already know something about that there is something already in existence for us to find out about it. Like we we seem to must already know something. It has to get started somewhere. Like we must be able to identify a thing, for instance. And this is a thought that just occurred to me. So I'm just <laughs> trying to assemble mm -hmm. it here. And so related to the dialogue, I said this last time, I think there's so many crazy things and so many different strands and threads happening uh, overlapping and just happening at once. And it's hard to know, at least in, on my reading, what exactly is sincere, since after all, we, we, we should remember that Socrates claims he's possessed by the spirit of Euthyphro right now, who is someone people mock, not just Plato. Mm. Apparently, he was a person who was like widely mocked by people <laughs> of Athens because uh, he, he thinks he has like visions or knows the gods or whatever. So there's, there's a lot of different things going on here in the dialogue. So I feel like there's a lot that's playful, at least in the stretch we've read so far, the first two thirds we've read. There's a lot that seems to be playful in the dialogue. And I can point to a lot of places where it seems to me that Hermogenes and Socrates are just sort of fooling around. They seem to be just fooling around. <laughs> I, actually, I actually wonder if they're trolling Cratylus because Cratylus is the one with the naturalistic view. And I think it, I think it's clear, like I, I skimmed ahead to the very conclusion because I feel like the conclusions of these dialogues often have clues to how to interpret all the complex things that are happening. And, you know, it does seem like Socrates will come out against the naturalistic view of language at the end, even though he starts off the dialogue in the first 10 pages, making an argument for it. So I, I, I even wonder if a lot of the things they're saying here including in some of the etymologies, are actually like trolling Cratylus. Like, for instance, the one that you just read um, on, on, what was it, Thestes or something? Hang on. Thethys? Yeah, Thessis. I can't, how do you pronounce it? Thethys. Thethys, okay. <laughs> Thethys. Okay, so this is what we read here. He says, but it practically tells you, okay, so this is regarding the name Teth Teth Tethys. Uh, but it practically tells you itself that it is the slightly disguised name of a spring. After all, what is strained or diatomenon and filtered or ethumenon 
is like a spring. And the name Tethys is a compound of these two names. Okay. I was, and, okay. And then Hermogenes says, that's elegant, Socrates. I was like, there, is this a joke? First of all, the etymology makes no sense. Like how is Tethys? It's a, co a compound of those names that were just given, the Dialtomenon and Edumenon. But even if it was, if you have a theory about it, it doesn't seem particularly elegant to me. And Hermogenes <laughs> is like, that's elegant. And then there's, there's actually many instances of this. I can point to other places, but I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just use that as an illustration right now. So I'm like, what in the world's going on? That's a good point. And I think that you know, the idea that there is this trolling going on, it's an interesting thing. And there is definitely play back and forth between Socrates and Hermogenes. And then later when they bring in Cratylus himself at the, the end of the dialogue, seems like there is something playful going on and in fact Socrates uses the word playful in one of his definitions uh, a little bit later on in this section I wondered how they got how Socrates got the name <laughs> Tethys from from those diatomenon and Athumenon. Uh, I'm not quite sure I see some of the similar letters but uh, maybe it's maybe it's just lack of understanding of the ancient Greek uh, so and which makes it a little bit difficult, I think, to read this dialogue is that there are these ancient Greek words, but it is interesting to see how many of these ancient Greek words have rooted themselves in the English language. So I definitely wonder too if it was just my lack of understanding of the Greek. But as you highlighted, coming up shortly, they talk about how there's a serious way of explaining these names of these gods and other things, but there's also a playful one. And that uh, Hermogenes will have to go to someone else for the serious etymologies that, but Socrates can give you a playful one because, and even the gods love to play. So I feel like there's a lot that's playful going on here. And then Hermogenes sort of catches on and I feel like they end up sort of playing together. And the issue of like how to read these texts comes into the picture too, because I feel like sometimes reading these dialogues is like reading a play. Like there's, when you read a play, there aren't that many indicators of like what is dramatically happening. Like when you're producing the play from the text, you have to fill in a lot of the feelings and emotions and the interactions and the facial expressions. Like that's actually not written in a play, like, uh, or many plays at least for most plays, when you read them, they're like that stuff isn't filled in. That's up for the interpretation of the director and the actors. So you have to do that when you read these dialogues, I feel yeah. like, and I feel like when you have that in mind that these are dialogues, they're not, uh, they're not typical philosophical treatises or whatever. They're, they're dramas too. I, I feel like if you were to produce this as an actual play, they would be sort of like winking at each other and stuff like that with Cratylus <laughs> just watching watching in the background unamused. <laughs> it, is, it is this interesting flowing back and forth of, of ideas uh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's I wonder just... Um, Socrates makes a statement, we are we ourselves say that what partakes of being is, and I wonder the word is there, does that imply some sort of permanence? What partakes of being is, so that is permanence, which we're looking for, I think he's implying, but there is this constant motion, you know, so we're in this state of becoming, or at least our everything physical is in a state of becoming, and so that confuses us. And I think that's a very common theme throughout Plato. But we need to reach into this realm of being to find out what truly is. I, I'm reading that word here. We ourselves say that what partakes of being is. I'm reading the word is as being of some permanence. 
And then that stands in contrast to what he says of Heraclitus' doctrine is that the things that are, are all flowing and that nothing stands fast. So I'm wondering what we think of that. I see, JK, uh, your hand up. If you have any thoughts on that or anything else, that would be appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, the, uh, the idea is, I think, in terms of uh, the temporality, right, the is would be the present. But if you, if you uh, think of it in terms of temporality, you're never in the present because you're coming in to it from the past. So it's the past and you're going towards the future. And so that is might be the infinite difference between past and present, past and future. And so that kind of difference would be what is maybe um, eternal or infinite, possibly. But I, I think that the, uh, the idea of, um, of a kind of fixed eternal being is a little bit hard to accept because it seems to imply that there's a kind of something, some being that's transcendent, that's out of outside of the, the world of eminence and, uh, and eminence of becoming. And that's hard to swallow. Well, that's a good point. I, I wanted to drive into that maybe because I think a lot of or the difficulties that people have with Plato may relate to this idea of being, this permanence of being, and maybe is, and you may have touched upon it, there is perhaps a perception that we in the state of becoming are not also part of that state of being. And I wonder whether that is a common perception, or can we make the case that we are in both states of becoming and being? The way you you use the word temporality in terms of is being the present. And I like the way you said, actually, the present is the difference between past and future, because the present is this state of constant becoming, which is, you know, maybe what Heraclitus is referring to here. But at some point, does the past and the future become fixed? And does it become fixed in a state of being? It makes me think, actually, of the law of conservation of information, which is a universal law, which has been debated and, I think, constantly concluded that it exists. So if we are information, if our thoughts are information, then that information needs to be conserved somewhere. It, it doesn't maybe just flow around, never fixed somewhere. And so maybe that's part of what's in the state of being. So maybe some thoughts on this question of being and whether, and whether it is, as you said, hard to swallow or whether there is some case to be made that we are both in the, the form of our bodies in the state of becoming, but in our minds in the state of being. Uh, so I wanted to put that thought out there. We'll go to Jane and then to Darren. Uh, regarding the question of uh, being, becoming, to me, the word is, uh, being is, being and is are sort of synonymous and they would be opposite to becoming. Uh, but at the same time, to answer the question of, at least within the Platonic uh, universe, uh, is the person solely within the realm of becoming? And that's it. I, I think not. And I think that, again, in the Platonic universe, the person has a soul, and this soul is directly connected to the world of ideas, of ideal forms of Plato. And this makes the person always have a connection to this ideal state of being. While um, being immortal and having a body, the person is always in a state of becoming at the same time. And I think that this is, uh, we've mentioned Heraclitus, and Heraclitus um, is sort of 
one of the forefathers of dialectics. And if we look at how dialectics developed with Hegel, we have the thesis, antithesis, and the synthesis. And when we have the um, thesis and antithesis uh, sort of collide to form the synthesis, we always see, I, I, can't, I can't remember the correct wording for it, the correct name, but within the synthesis, we always have that which was present in the thesis. And so this element that uh, looks completely, seems to be completely new and born out of this conflict, actually in essence has part of the initial thesis in it. And this sort of happens over and over and over again as dialectics develop in a spiral sort of way. That's all I wanted to add, thank you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I wonder if it brings us back maybe to what Darren said uh, a little while ago in terms of the Mino and the thought that to develop knowledge, you need to know something to start off with or have some basis of information to start off with. And that maybe gets into the notion that all knowledge is recollection, which is the point that, that was made in the Mino or recollection, again, being, account, uh, being defined as the account of the reasons why. And so maybe that's part of the original thesis that could come in. And, and you know, in this dialogue, Plato is really trying to take us to the question of what is the original basis of a name and why do we need to be able to go back to that original basis of the name when we could just make up our own conventions? So really interesting thought and, and really interesting comment there about Heraclitus and dialectics. I also like the way you referred to the ideal state of being and the realm of ideas, which I think would be in that, certainly not in the state of becoming, but maybe in that state of being. And I know sometimes Plato's forms are referred to as ideas. So that's maybe a connection there that we can make. So thank you for that. And then we'll go to Darren. So I do want to come back to what you and Jane have just uh, discussed, this problem of well, Mino's paradox, the problem of knowledge and what we what knowledge consists of and how it gets started and what we have to know in order to know anything. So I was saying there is, sorry, I got off track in my last comment, but I was saying how there's like, I, I feel like there's a lot of different strands in this dialogue and some of them are playful. I just want to like indicate that. I think there are many strands here that are playful strands, but I think there are some serious ones <laughs> too. Yeah. And um, I, I think some of the more serious ones are precisely about this problem. And the one that you flagged with your video at the start, about the relationship, and it's about the relationship, at least this is my reading, we're trying to find a relationship of language to knowing the truth about things, because language seems to be our only vehicle, because <laughs> we're using it right now, and it's what we use to mm -hmm. um, speak of the world, and as we saw last week, to instruct about the world and the nature of things, and to ask questions. This is our, this is our tool. So Plato thinks there's something has to be naturalistic about it because it has to relate to nature somehow, just like our other tools do if we want them to work well. But what is that relationship there? So there are a lot of etymologies, which I personally feel are extremely suspicious. I think Socrates himself flagged that. For instance, mm -hmm. James, you, you had us read that quote at the start where, or, or I think you at least mentioned it, um, where Socrates says that, I, I don't know if these are really the etymologies of the gods, like that we're clueless about, but at least this is what people thought about the gods and this is what they're basing it on. So I think that makes them suspicious, but I think there are moments, um, other moments where things get a little bit weird again in the dialogue where like you're wondering, oh, maybe there's something serious here too. I, I think that's all in the spirit of playfulness that we see so far in the dialogue. And maybe we're maybe we're meant to question along with Socrates some of these things, 
mm -hmm. uh, sure. because because if we don't question, then how are we ever going to get to the natural form of uh, of the language or of the of, of the name? In fact, at one right. point he at one point he actually says, if we didn't have language and words to instruct each other, as you as you reminded us of that point from last time, if we didn't have language and words, how would we convey ideas? He says we would actually use our hands and and things to point to natural things. <laughs> He actually says, I was looking for it in the dialogue, I can't find it, but it is in there. We do have to refer to nature at some point. Yeah, that's right, James. And and I think that thing about pointing or whatever that you're talking about, that I'm not sure where it is in here. Um, maybe it's coming up or maybe I just forgot about it, but it's definitely in the Sophist, which we read mm -hmm. last time, where he, he talks about a certain kind of personality or people who think that to know something they'll like literally run up you ask them and they'll literally run up to a tree and hug it <laughs> and be like this is like this is the definition this is like a tree or whatever yeah. and that's like all they know so i think there are clues already in the reading this week mm -hmm. about that but I, I want to respond to what james said or sorry jk said earlier about whether there's something outside of being so i think there's a section that's actually very relevant to what he said, and I think Jane already said something really great about how in the Fido we see maybe the soul is an indication of something that is outside the world of becoming an imminence. But even here in the Cratylus, so this is at 412C or D, where the discussion is about justice. And it's actually, this is kind of an amusing section, at least to me. He's trying to give this etymology of the word justice. And Maybe I'll just read the first three sentences here. So it's easy to figure out that justice is the name given to the comprehension of the just, but the just itself is hard to understand. It seems that many people agree with one another about it up to a point, but beyond that, they disagree. Those who think that the universe is emotion believe that most of it is of such a kind as to do nothing but give way, but that something penetrates all of it and generates everything that comes into being. This, they say, is the fastest and smallest thing of all, for if it were not the smallest, so that nothing could keep it out, or not the fastest, so that it could treat all other things as though they were standing still, it wouldn't be able to travel through everything. However, since it is governor and penetrator of everything else, it is rightly called just. The K sound is added for the sake of euphony. So on the question of whether there's <laughs> anything that maybe ideas or whatever that's outside of our empirical world like this seems to be a good instance of that because there were people apparently people thought like justice was literally a very small and fast object that zoomed across the world <laughs> and this is where this is what they thought of what justice was like literally as a as an object in the world that's like zooming around and establishes things but i think this is meant to be questionable so if you i i, I, I won't keep reading because it's actually a very long section but I, if you keep going down later on, Socrates is going to ask, but um, he gives a sort of story about how he came across this idea. Um, but then he asks, what actually is the just? Like he, he says, he asked these people who came up with this idea, who were telling him the story about just the word justice. And, he, and so he asked these people, what actually is the just? And then they told him to like basically shut up. But this is what he really wants to know. Like what actually is the justice thing of zooming around? And they have not they have nothing to say and but socrates says that's what he really wanted to find out but he wasn't able to find that out that's an interesting example of how we go in this dialogue from or in this section that we're reading from talking about the realm of the gods which is in that state of being 
to the notion of justice as we apply it in a state of becoming. Uh, and so in both cases, the names, the origin of the names is based on motion, or at least as Socrates is putting it, is based on motion. And I just put, you, you read part of what was up here on the screen. So I just put that on the screen as because that was the second part of uh, or the second theme that I'd suggested for today was this idea of how justice arose. But certainly, you know, as you say, the, we instruct each other with these names. And so how do we understand the origin of the names and how do we understand the instruction that one soul is giving to the other soul with this language? Right. So if we took this etymology seriously, then we would have to think that justice is a very small object flying around yeah. <laughs> really yeah. quickly. I think it's it, a lot of what is being used here is based on analogy, but certainly what he's saying is to think of the mindset of the people who came up with the meaning of justice or the application of justice, he's saying it's based on motion. It doesn't, I'm not sure that he's saying that it is precisely that's the definition of it, but it, the definition was based on motion and that's the way they came up with the words. And the the words there, justice, the Greek is daikaiosune, I apologize for my, I'm not, I don't know the Greek language, so I don't know how to pronounce it. So daikaiosune uh, is the name given to the comprehension of the just, which translates as sunesis. but the just itself is hard to understand. So you can see how he's connecting the, the words. Daikaiosune means justice, and sunesis is just, and he's connecting both of them to, to motion. But even in this section, though, he's already flagging that that's he's already suggesting, like yeah. hinting, as all these 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 dialogues often do, that that's not what justice is, because he's gonna right. po he poses the question just below, right? Like he asks yeah. these people, "What is justice?" And then yeah. they told him to shut up. Yeah. Well, let's come back to that because I think it's it's a good example of what the dialogue is trying to do. Uh, I just wanted to go to J.K. at this point, and then we can we can come back to uh, that and explore it further together with the idea of how we instruct each other. So JK. Yeah, I like this, uh, yeah, this, this discussion about uh, names and language, how language is used to, you know, arrive at ideas like justice, it has to do with memory and recollection, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, memory is something, you know, that you've experienced in the past. And so the names that we, we uh, have introduced into our minds are there in our memory. And memory plays a very important role in how we respond to the world or how we make our decisions and so forth. And the world of becoming is the present. And we use the language, use the names for purpose of serving our needs and, and desires and aspirations. So there's involves a future. So could you think of the mind as, as what Plato means? The mind is memory and our um, attempt to um, memory and uh, and our um, projects in terms of thinking about the future and mm -hmm. the uh, the world of becoming uh, is is the present and how we respond and act in the present in the world of becoming that's a really interesting connection that you made there in terms of memory and how possibly if I understand what you were saying that memory our memory is of motions. Our memory is of change, right? Um, or I think, as I said, in the context of the uh, in the context of the uh, forms, our perception is of difference. We, we don't perceive sameness because there's no 
there, there's no, nothing to differentiate one thing from another when, when everything is the same, but we perceive difference and difference arises in motion. And, you know, again, to go back to what I said in the introduction, motion is not just a change in spatial position, which is the way we normally think of motion, but it's also a change in state. And so if our memory is of changes both in spatial position and change in state, uh, then I think you call it to attention a very important point that the mind operates on memory. And so that's, that's actually a really interesting point that we could explore is that why we tend to name things based on the motions, the changes in state or the changes in position. Right, so like even the names, he talks about how the names are revised, right? Uh, letters could be added or taken mm -hmm. away in order to fit the situation. Right. So at the same time, this, uh, there is this kind of important element of difference, right? That comes into mm -hmm. play. And could that difference be something like Hegel's, you know, power of the negative? Mm. Yeah, which, uh, which is a driver of the dialectic. This process is, the, is that dialectic he's talking about. And just maybe describe for me, because I'm not sure what power of the negative means, but I've been interested in that. Well, in Hegel, you know, uh, there's a kind of uh, the important element in this cycle, in the in the dialectical process, is is the negative. A being comes into the world. You, uh, he begins with being, then the negative comes into the picture, and is able mm. to negate the being in order to be mm. arrive at the next stage of of the thesis, antithesis, and then mm -hmm. I think the third one is becoming. Interesting, interesting. I guess that makes me think of um, of what, uh, what was the the, the Parmenides where. Parmenides was telling us never to think that not being is a negation of being, but I, I think I understand maybe with that idea of negation of one particular state of being. Maybe is 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 that what Hegel is trying to say? Yeah, I think that's how I, I'm trying to understand it. Yeah. Also, if you uh, introduce, you're familiar with uh, Deleuze, right? Deleuze uh, also mm -hmm. critiques uh, even Hegel's notion of the dialectic in terms of uh, it begins with uh, with being as an identity uh, and so the negation is a reaction to being rather than a positive force of being mm. so um, for him difference is the positive it's not a reaction but it is a positive force uh, power mm. um, that makes the difference and that um, and that drives the um, the process mm -hmm. so it's also a process uh, view Interesting, fascinating. Yeah, I think a really important point that you brought up, you know, the, the idea that memory is based on this difference in this motion and we remember things, whether it's in the state of being, such as the gods or justice, which is a uh, an idea in our state of becoming, it, it seems Socrates is saying we remember these things all based on memory uh, or all based on motion, which is a really interesting connection to make there. So thank you. Said so one of the things I wanted to look at this time was how we define a word, just maybe as an example of what we've been talking about. And one word that I thought would be really interesting to try to define is democracy, because it's certainly very much in the news these days. Uh, and maybe we can just look at this for a few minutes and think about what Socrates is saying in terms of the etymology of words and how we would understand the word democracy. If we were to go back to the original source of the word democracy, what's our understanding of it? And do we arrive at some sort of problem 
in trying to find the natural, is there a natural basis of democracy? And how do we strip away all of this conventional approach that's been applied to democracy over thousands of years, ever since, you know, it was present in Plato's Athens, and it's present in various forms throughout the world now with various imperfections. So I thought maybe we could just look at this as an example of how we actually apply the importance of the Cradleus to a very relevant current concept of democracy, because we look at the headlines now, and there's a lot of the headlines every day saying democracy is under threat, not just here in, in North America, but across the world. So I pulled some definitions of democracy, which I found quite interesting. So I'll just display these on the screen here. So definitions of democracy, I go back again to my Oxford English Dictionary, the concise version of 1976, it says government by all the people, direct or representative, form a society ignoring hereditary class distinctions and tolerating minority views. So that was the definition of democracy. And let's remember that democracy consists of two Greek words, demos meaning people and kratia meaning power. So the, that definition uses both the word people and government meaning power, I guess. And there was a similar definition in the Houghton Mifflin Canadian Dictionary of the English Language, 1982. Government by the people exercised either directly or through elected representatives uh, or a social condition of equality and respect for the individual within the community. So we're starting to get some differences here. And then the Oxford English Dictionary 2022 has many definitions. This one is a really long one. Government by the people, especially a system of government in which all the people of a state or polity, or especially formally a subset of them meeting particular conditions, are involved in making decisions about its affairs, typically by voting to elect representatives to a parliament or similar assembly, or more generally, a system of decision-making within an institution, organization, etc., in which all members have the right to take part or vote in later use often more widely with reference to the conditions characteristically obtaining under such a system, a form of society in which all citizens have equal rights, ignoring hereditary distinctions of class or rank, and the views of all are tolerated and respected, the principle of fair and equal treatment of everyone in a state institution, organization, etc. And then I add for maybe a bit of fun, Abraham Lincoln's very short, concise definition, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And I highlighted here in yellow some things that were problematic in defining government by all the people. So all is an interesting word because we don't allow children to vote. So are children people? And then I mentioned in our previous episode, up until about 100 years ago, women weren't allowed to vote. So women, are they, are they people? Because I think we considered ourselves a democracy back in that time before women were allowed to vote, and yet all the people weren't voting, women and children especially. And then ignoring hereditary class distinctions, which came up in several of the definitions, well, do we actually ignore those distinctions now? Do we actually tolerate minority views, social condition of equality and respect? Do we really have equality and respect in our systems? Are these ideals, are these actually definitions? And, and how do, when we say, we want ourselves to be in a democratic system. What do we really mean by being in a democratic system? If we go back to the words demos, people, and kratia, meaning power, what is power, for example? Here in the Oxford English Dictionary 2022, it says typically by voting. Well, is voting really a form of power 
if, for example, you live in a gerrymandered district, or if there's only one party effectively allowed to govern. So is democracy a process or is it an outcome? So voting is more process-based, but then there's also outcomes that we have to consider. So I wanted to just use this example of democracy as a way of how we would approach finding out the meaning of something and then how we would deal with these differences in definition. Because this is really, it's a significant problem, I think, in, in our world today, this definition of democracy and what we're striving for. Darren, your thoughts? I think this exercise you gave us is totally fascinating and, and just contrasting these definitions and then like having Abraham Lincoln's very succinct one because it, it shows us in this one word how I think in, in many, at least more philosophical attempts at trying to define these concepts and to understand them, the truth of them, there is a sense that there's some, there's some kernel that is the essence of democracy. That is a true thing. And maybe that's best captured in the succinct form of Abraham Lincoln, although I'm sure there are people, intelligent people who might find issues with it or have questions about that particular formulation. But then like many other aspects of these definitions are just totally contingent, they're historical or reality might not resemble re reality of like what we purport to be democracies don't resemble some of the ways in which we think we understand the concepts. So there's this intermingling between both what is what we think there is some essence um, to this concept of democracy, and, but also all these contingent impure aspects mm -hmm. of both certain ways of defining the term, but also the way in which it's used and applied in our world. So if I may, James, I want to bring mm -hmm. I want to bring Cradles back in because I think yeah. there's a very interesting connection to Absolutely. Um, one part of the text here. And I think this is actually I personally think. So again, as I said, I think there's like jokey parts of the dialogue and there's some more serious parts. I think one of the more serious parts is where he gives us the etymologies for Hermes and Pan. I'll focus specifically on Pan because I think it applies it applies so well here. And it's also one of the more, I think one of the more interesting and just very provocative etymologies um, given out of like the hundred different ones that we have. So Socrates says, this is a 408C. Maybe I'll just read a few of these sentences because the dialogue here is probably more clear than <laughs> I'll summarize. So he says, but it is reasonable for Pan to be Hermes's double natured son. And we, and above we saw that Hermes it comes from activities involving the power of speech. So Hermes is, means interpreter, a messenger, deceiver in words, a wheeler, dealer, and so on. Okay, so here, so coming back to 408C here, but it is reasonable for Pan to be Hermes's, so speeches, doubled nature's son. Uh, how so? And Socrates says, you know, speech signifies all things that to Pan, to Pan, and keeps them circulating and always going about, and that it has two forms, true and false. And Hermogenes says, certainly. Socrates says, well, the true part is smooth and divine and dwells among the gods above, while the false part dwells below among the human masses and is rough and goatish. For it is here in the tragic life that one finds the vast majority of myths and falsehoods. Hermogenes says, certainly. Socrates, therefore, the one who expresses all things, pan, and keeps them always in circulation, a polon, is correctly called pan the goat herd. The double nature son of Hermes 
He is smooth in his upper parts and rough and goatish in the ones below. He is either speech itself or the brother of speech since he is a son of Hermes. And it's not a bit surprising that a brother resembles his brother. But as I said, let's leave the gods. Okay, so that's the end of that. He's suggesting that Pan is something to do with um, speech or signification or expression. Mm -hmm. And so Pan, it was properly named because Pan has this double-sided, like has a, he's rough and goatish uh, on the bottom and smooth on the top. It, it, it's appropriate because Socrates is saying here, speech, which keeps things in circulation, has both these forms. It always has this double-sided nature. So coming back to this uh, the exercise he gave us, it's, it suggests this, right? So at least what I was saying before about how in these words, there's sort of the messy contingent aspects changing aspects of these definitions and words like democracy, which we see in maybe the Oxford 2022 definition um, and all the very contingent things it puts in. And then there seems to be some essence that we're all searching for, or we all sort of want to point to, but it's very hard to. And that's like the smooth part of pan, that of speech in this very etymology I was referring to. So that's all I'll say, like that's Plato himself is flagging this dual aspects of speech because we're living, he says, in the tragic life like on earth, not in heaven, that speech will always have this double-sided aspect to it. That's really helpful, I think, to use that reference, Pan, all things circulating, you know, the idea that speech exists to keep ideas circulating, but then it has that rough side. It, that was a really helpful quote that you use there from 408C. And maybe let's just apply that to this definition of democracy. If we had to pick out the, or take out the rough and goatish parts, which I think maybe in Socrates terms would be the conventional applications of democracy. In other words, toleration and respect might be a more modern addition to it based on the way democracy is being used conventionally rather than its original form. If we had to pick out from all of these words here that I have on the screen, these various definitions of democracy, if we had to pick out the natural basis of the meaning of democracy and strip out all of the conventional additions to the word over time, I wonder what we would pick out for, as you said, Darren, the, the kernel of the, of the definition. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. It's something we can continue to think about. I, I find it a very difficult thing. I, I, I really don't know how to find the natural definition of a word like that, which has been so, there's a word actually that Plato uses, it was actually in one of the readings that I had at 4.14 C or D, where Socrates says, we add letters to words to make them sound good in the mouth. But I think also we add conventions to definitions such as democracy that we're looking at now. And then Socrates says, this results in distortions and ornamentation of every kind. So maybe there is some distortion and ornamentation going on in here that, that we can try to sort out. So use this as an example. Darren, any more thoughts? I, I sort of mentioned this already, but I feel like Abraham Lincoln's very succinct and poetic version probably gets pretty close to the truth. I'll probably have to do like search through my philosophy <laughs> books <laughs> and uh, to see maybe what are the other ones. But I feel like a poetic formulations often are great because there's something in like the rhythm and the poetry of it that I don't know, suggests something that's 
beyond the words like that's how poetry often works like it uses words but it's you know it's not literal it's like pointing something beyond and there's something very elegant and poetic in what formulation that helps I, I just want to make a comment that I think it's interesting like when we look at these definitions and they're different they have different aspects to them that we feel like that we're that there is some kernel right like it doesn't it, we, it it could just be that we have definitions of democracy and we just accept them like maybe in a very flatly homogenistic sense <laughs> i just made up a new word there <laughs> homogenistic okay uh like we could just uh, take these definitions and, and just accept them and be like this is the, how one person defines them and that's it we leave it at that but it's interesting that we're we're always at least many of us are often like are provoked to ask the question like is this really the real definition or or the true definition that we can even ask this question i think should be fascinating because these words we could just accept them in a purely conventionalistic way but no we have like someone could just give us a definition of justice and we could just grow up and we just accept it but no like when someone asks what really is justice which socrates asks in so many dialogues we can really feel the power of that question it's like we have all these definitions, but what really is it? These other definitions that, for instance, maybe Thrasymachus provided in book one of The Republic, it's not satisfying somehow. So to me, this very phenomenon is interesting and almost like already in a way directs our sight towards maybe something like ideas mm-hmm. <laughs> with the capital I. Um, this is just a you know suggestion, but I think it is something that many of these dialogues is trying to get us to do, right? It's trying to get us to think and provoke us to think. And it seems that in that process, we are led to ask questions about what is the essential nature of these words or or these concepts that we use, like all these virtue terms, like what is virtue, <laughs> that virtue, mm-hmm. or what, are, what is courage and so on. Mm-hmm. Good observation. And the Abraham Lincoln definition there, government of the people, by the people, for the people, you said is poetic. It's also short, which maybe adds to the poetry of it. Maybe the shorter things tend to be the more natural definitions. Maybe I'm thinking, you know, about mathematical theories, for example. I, I think there's a general understanding that a beautiful mathematical theory is one that's really compact. It, it doesn't take many, many thousands of pages to prove. Uh, so that's right. Uh, that, that's how I understand. And so maybe there's maybe there's an example of some beauty in that definition of of Lincoln's, whereas the Oxford English Dictionary 2022, and this is only one of many definitions, goes on for a full paragraph uh, with many different ideas that have been applied differently over time. The other observation I wanted to add here too is that the way we govern ourselves in democratic systems or systems that we think are democratic can be very different and they can really lead to very different results. And the example I wanted to use here is political funding, which, and so I'm Canadian, And in Canada, we do not allow corporations to contribute to political financing when individuals are capped. I think it's currently now at $1,600 is the most that an individual can contribute to a federal candidate, uh, which is a very small amount, relatively speaking. Whereas in the U.S., which also holds itself to be a democratic system, I think there are essentially no limits on political funding. And I think there are very different results that arise from that in terms of who the politicians pay attention to. So I think this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring out this definition of democracy, because we all say that we are in democratic systems, but we 
apply the definition very differently and it has very different outcomes. And certainly when people or when the headlines talk about democracy being under threat, it's a very, I think, relevant case of how definitions can matter. I wanted to go to JK. I just want to ask if anybody remembers the um, Martin Luther King's line about justice, one of his speeches, something about life is a struggle or something, but it bends towards justice. Hmm. Uh, yeah, some, something like that. I forget. And anybody else remembers? It's a really good line. Yeah. Yeah, I did recall something about that, but I, I don't recall the, the whole line. I mean, justice is, of course, another example of a word that we have great trouble and great conflict in defining. Darren. Um, I just want to take the liberty of bringing up some, another, another thing from the Cratylus, which I think is quite pertinent to uh, this discussion we're having. So regarding our discussion, what I was talking about earlier that like, it's, it's so curious to me that we can even raise a question about like, what is the true nature of this concept, democracy, that the question makes sense to us and we try to find it. Okay, well, at 421A to B, so near the end of the reading for today, there's various etymologies for epistemological terms like truth and falsehood and being and so on. But the one I want to flag is the one for the word name, which is onoma. So I'll just read this. It's just one sentence. I'll read it here at 421A. Socrates says, well, omena, name, seems to be a compressed statement which says, this is a being for which there is a search. You can see this more easily in onomaston, or things named, since it clearly says, this is a being for which there is a search. And it won't read the Greek there because <laughs> I'll just totally kill it. I don't know about you guys. I find that totally fascinating. Okay, and and I also happen to think this may be one of the more serious moments. So it's not one of the jokey ones. I mean, it's just too good that Socrates says that name indicates that there's something to search for. And it fits into our discussion because this idea of like, oh, you gave us all these definitions of democracy, James, but there's still a search for which one is the right one, right? It's not, it's not like we're dissatisfied. Oh, there's these various ones, but which ones seem to capture it best? So there's a search. It's interesting that it begins with a name. I mean, I think that's a suggestion here that it starts with something in ourselves, our own consciousness or thinking. And just to make another connection, <laughs> this comes back to the Penrose clip maybe about how there is something in understanding that just transcends just the rules or various, maybe he says the coding, or maybe you can understand as like definitions of things that understanding is something that points beyond just that. So which is why when someone just gives us various definitions of the words, like what, like justice or goodness or democracy, that it's possible to be unsatisfied with the definition. It's not purely a convention. Thrasymachus says that justice is just whatever the powerful says it is or, or rule the powerful. And, but we don't accept that. Our understanding transcends just like these various rules. It, it demands a bit more. So anyway, I, I don't know how, how tightly you can make, make that connection, what Penrose said, but I just want to, I feel like there's some connection there with this idea that a name is a being for which there is a search. And this idea that there can be a search and that this is a phenomenon that exists is fascinating, mm -hmm. at least to me. For sure. Well, let's go to JK. And then I wanted to maybe get back to the idea of whether man is the measure of things. Because I think we've been talking about this kind of throughout this discussion today, whether man is the measure of things. And again, 
whether we are able to measure if we believe that everything fits into a Heraclitean system in which nothing is permanent. There are no permanent limits by which we can measure things. So just wanted to bring the discussion back to that to frame it, because that's going to be very much, I think, a part of our next and final episode on the Cradless, uh, is to understand how this discussion of Heraclitus fits into this question of whether man is a measure of things. So we'll go to JK. Yeah, I found a quote, and I think, um, because Martin Luther King was a philosopher, you know, he, he, um, he studied philosophy and definitely studied Plato, and he might even be a Platonist. The quote is um, where he says that the, um, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's beautiful. Poetic. Yeah, it's, I agree. I really like that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. The arc of the universe is long. An arc is an interesting word because it implies roundness, which is, and that which is round has no beginning and end. And that I think is very important to our understanding because our understanding really has no limit uh, or no inherent limit. The limits are really ones that we establish ourselves. The arc of the universe is, yeah, that, that, that's, that's very good. Thank you. So, you know, again, this definition of things I think is, is important and definitions, you know, certainly with that example of Martin Luther King can be very inspiring and, and not just necessarily things that cause discord and disagreement. So I think that's very helpful. Maybe I'll just read this part from 414B to E, and this is to return to the idea that we talked about last time of supervising the rules. We heard at the beginning of this episode, Roger Penrose talking about rules, and rules are things that can be transcended. So they're not fixed in time forever. Once we have understanding, then we can transcend the rules. But first, we need to have understanding. And maybe this is the point that Socrates is trying to make in this dialogue, that we have to understand things. And we have to understand things. I, he's going to conclude, we'll see next time, he's going to conclude that understanding will require that we understand the conventional use of words as well as the natural origin of words. So I'll just read this bit from 415b to e. Socrates says, there are still plenty of names left that seem important. And one of them is to see what the name techne or craft means. If you remove the T and insert an O between the, the K, CH, and the N, and the N and the E, or E, resulting in ikonoe, doesn't it signify the possession of understanding? In Greek, hexis nu. Hermogenes says, yes, Socrates, but getting it to do so is like trying to haul a boat up a very sticky ramp. And this, I'll just break there briefly. He also raises that sticky ramp uh, analogy at the end of the dialogue at 435c in a reference to conventionalism. So we have to take away the stickiness or maybe what Darren was referring to earlier in the, the use of Socrates' use of the word goatishness. So we have to haul the boat up a very sticky ramp. We need to get rid of that stickiness. Socrates says, but then you know, Hermogenes, that the first names given to things have long since been covered over by those who wanted to dress them up and that letters were added or subtracted to make them sound good in the mouth, resulting in distortions and ornamentation of every kind. You know, too, that time has had a share in this process. Take catoptron, which is English, uh, in English is mirror, for example. Don't you think that the R is, a, is an absurd addition? And I'll just break there to explain that the R interrupts the sequence opto, which suggests a verb for seeing. We would use that same opto as a basis in English for seeing as in optometry. That's the original Greek. Socrates continues saying, in my view, 
This sort of thing is the work of people who think nothing of the truth, but only of the sounds that their mouths make. Hence, they keep embellishing the first names until finally a name is reached that no human being can understand. One example, among many others, is that they call the Sphinx by that name instead of Fix. Hermogenes says, that's right, Socrates. Socrates says, and yet, if we can add whatever we like to names or subtract whatever we like from them, it will be far too easy to fit any name to anything. Hermogenes says, that's true. Socrates says, it concludes, yes, it is true. So I think a wise supervisor like yourself will have to keep a close watch to preserve balance and probability. And I wanted to introduce that conclusion for a few reasons, because we talked last time about supervising the name setting, name setting being a craft, and we somebody needs to supervise the, the use of that craft. So for one example was the craft of making a rudder, the ship captain would supervise the effectiveness of that, because the captain is the one who actually uses the rudder. The rudder is made by a carpenter, but the captain is the one who uses it. So the captain is a supervisor. So here Socrates is saying that there's a role for us in supervising the application of names. So I thought that was an interesting way to understand maybe what we talked about last time in terms of name setting and supervising. The other thing I thought was really interesting in this is that he says, we have to keep a close watch to preserve balance and probability. I thought it was really interesting. Why would he say balance and probability? What's the importance of balance and probability in terms of understanding names? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? That was a really interesting use of, of phrase. James, how would you describe probability here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I see probability. Uh, well, probability is the is different from certainty. So I think, first of all, he's saying that there's no certainty in the origin of names. Uh, and so if there's no certainty, then we have to look to probability. So if there's a range of things that a name could be, what is the most probable thing that that name is? Uh, so there's some sort of analysis that needs to be done there to get rid of options that are not probable and to keep the options that are more probable. That, that's how I understand probability being used in that sense. Darren, any thoughts? So regarding the passage you just read, the very beginning, so regarding this term techne, craft, um, so Socrates, I'll just read this quickly again. So if you remove the T and insert an O between the CH and the N, and the N and the N and the E, like to me, this was to me stretching credulity. <laughs> the way he, and I think Hermogenes is referring to this, that in order to get there, you're hauling a boat up a very sticky ramp. So is, and, that, is that an example maybe of looking for probabilities and maybe Hermogenes is saying that this is not very probable? Yeah, I think that's Hermogenes saying it's not like that's at least like um, that you, you, you have to make it's a hard case for you to make Socrates. But regarding the super, so I'm going to tie this in with a supervision, supervisory role. So he says later on here that people, he, he talks about the word Sphinx and how people came to be scared of it, right? Is that, that's what he says, right? Mm -hmm. Or they became, because they think it means something else, right? It became, right. They think it means uh, to torture. This isn't a footnote. I think the suggestion about supervision here is that it might be similar to the suggestion about supervision of the poets in the Republic. It's that 
people are impressionable and get affected by entertainment and arts. So they better be supervised in a way so mm -hmm. that they're for the purposes of the good because art might not be and images might not be. So I feel like to the extent that people, you know, take words seriously in this way, that they might be scared of using certain words. And this comes up actually multiple times in this dialogue mm -hmm. so far that he, he mentions words that people are scared of uh, because of their false understanding of the word or what they think the word means. Then we need to make better associations so that they refer, so they're suggestive of the real nature of the thing rather than words that sound like they're referring to something different or, or su suggesting something that's that doesn't actually belong to what the word is supposed to be referring to. I feel like it might be similar to the idea of supervising the poets in the Republic. That's a, a useful example, I think, because especially with the poets, Plato often talks about Homer. And I think there's implications there that he thinks that Homer is, is telling us in a lot of his uh, works about the gods, as if Homer knows what the gods are like and what motivates the gods and all of this. And I think the reason Homer keeps coming up in Plato's dialogues is that it's a warning that we need to supervise that. We, we can't necessarily take what Homer says as being true because it is just poetry. And so there needs to be some supervision of that. We need, we will have to keep a close watch, he says, to preserve balance and probability. So is it, is there balance and probability in what Homer says of the gods? And I think some people take these things very literally. So it's, it's a good point, uh, and a good example of uh, supervision. I wanted to go to Eva. Yeah, I had something in mind. I'll go to that, but I want to analyze this sentence, what Socrates is trying to bring up an open, a super open-ended and a crazy understanding of, uh, in the sentence, a wise supervisor like yourself will have to keep a close watch to preserve balance and probability. So in a way, he's just saying, considering he's teaching, the next generation or us like people who want to process become so I hear like first of all you have to consider or have the goal to be wise and supervise that wisdom so just have the agenda of becoming a wiser for yourself and for others and keep a close watch and that balance and probability so if we if it's possibility or like what is possible like in order to keep balance you have to have more than one stuff so what is he balancing what is the other side what's on the other side of that balancing structure at least there has to be two or maybe more so is it your self identity or like self ideas about wisdom or democracy or is it like the social thing around or is it the time you're living in it's just like there are zillions of balance here when I think of Socrates the first thing comes into my mind is like this man who is living in the land of gods, there are many gods, and they all claim to be so powerful, so big, so 
aware of everything so they are all huge even more greater than you think that's what they claim and he he keeps saying like that small small tiny gods close to his body like in the back at the back of his ear or something so he's referring to the real understanding of maybe almighty or ruler as very very small but very close to himself i think that's a good unbalancing of the huge goddess <laughs> and uh the real idea of maybe uh i will say divine or what people can be yeah uh i think i'm trying to talk about a lot of things here and you certainly touched on a lot of really important things that too i think you know you started by mentioning teaching which goes back to what darren pointed out near the beginning i think is that this soul uses language and names and words to inform other souls and and this is how we form complex ideas and so this informing we do this to each other whether we're whether we are formally teachers or not we, we are teaching each other all the time i think that was an interesting thing that you said and then you also talked about supervising wisdom which actually leads into maybe we'll have time to do this last reading which talks about wisdom as being understanding of motion uh, which is something i mentioned in the introduction so how does wisdom relate to understanding motion and and you talked about what is he balancing and that maybe that goes back to the the word for rule the greek word for rule nomos which implies division so when we divide things we have two sides like if we, if we divide something in half we have two sides that are equal but if we divide something unequally like we divide it into one third and two thirds then there isn't a balance so somehow we have to find the equal which is a term that is used i think in multiple dialogues of plato certainly we saw that last season the equal and if we are looking for that balance we're looking for the equal which means that we are looking for the middle so i think that was a really interesting thing that you brought up you also mentioned the role of time as part of the balancing process so especially with words which the meaning changes over time and letters are added over time as we saw in this example with katoptron they added the r when it would have just been easier to say katopton so that's part of the balancing that we need to do is to figure out i think how to take away these things that cause our understanding to be unbalanced so and then you ended by talking about how you have to look for the smallest thing because it's too hard to try to balance the entire universe but if we look for that small very kernel of truth in it maybe that's maybe that's the way we look for balance so i really i really like that perspective that you brought to to things so thank you for that we'll go to Jane i i thought it may be interesting to introduce i i have a different version of the translation of this dialogue uh, so basically here instead of saying calling homogenous a wise supervisor he says and therefore a wise dictator like yourself should observe the laws of moderation and probability so in this version of the translation there was the word moderation instead of balance and wise dictator instead of wise supervisor 
and I think that's that's quite interesting. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. when we're reading all these translations, it's it's really important to keep in mind, I guess, that we're really just reading an interpretation of the translator, sort of his perspective. And to me, it seems quite interesting how it's it's very different actually because the word supervisor and dictator they're they're very much, at least to me, they're very much different um, in meaning. And this is this is more so interesting uh, if we sort of go back to the question of rule setters, who sets the rules, how, how are they set in general? And um, if, if, if we're looking at, at languages that like, I guess we could call modern language theory. I mean, a, a person, the way a person thinks and operates, uh, the, the very fundamentals, the, the very basis is language. And if you are able to control the language and how it is formed, how words are understood, how words are divided, and words are, um, in essence, I think that words are sort of um, these artificial way, ways of sort of making logical sense of the world. We're taking so something natural and we're just making up an artificial way to call it so we're able to comprehend it and understand it. And sort of when you're able to make those rules, which are, I guess, in essence, they're, well, not artificial, but they are, I guess, arbitrary, if, if, if according to some theories, that's not some theories, but some approaches. And just because uh, I, I'm not quite sure how to eloquently and shortly put this comment, but there is, for example, the, um, um, the uh, German mathematician Spengler, who talks about the, the sort of scientific super rational approach is is sort of like a death sentence for the true morphology of the world for for the sort of the the true essence of the world and so when we're making these um strict rules we're sort of killing the nature of things if that could be said but anyway i'm i i think i'm i'm just all, all over the place i just wanted to sort of insert that comment of how the translations are quite different and how they give this very different idea i guess of what is being said in the dialogue that's a really helpful illustration, though, I think, Jane, of the of the very point of this dialogue is that the words make a difference. And so the example that you used, the replacement of the word supervisor with dictator, I mean, to me, that's a completely different meaning. Are we looking for a dictator? Or at least as we understand dictators now, I mean, dictator is, is has all of that negative connotation now with certain individuals in this world presently who are dictators. None of us wants to be like those people. So that was a really interesting replacement or, or translation of that word. I would prefer the word supervisor, but you know, it, maybe it's just a question of preference at that point. And then when uh, your translation or the translation you're using had the word moderation in place of balance, something can be moderate, but not necessarily balanced. So there is a difference in meaning there. So really interesting example of how words make a difference in reading with those words, especially if we apply the conventional approach to a word like dictator, I think could give us a very different meaning. So it's a really excellent illustration, I think, of the point and the importance of the Cratylus. I, I also like how you ended with the with the mathematician and the notion that following strict rules or following rules strictly can kill the the nature of something and maybe that's talking about creativity is that if we think that everything is just completely rule bound how is creativity going to arise and that perhaps 
is what Roger Penrose was talking about too, that rules can exist. And here in the crowd list, we're trying to find the rules for naming things. But once we have understanding, then we can transcend the rules. And so are we looking to be completely constrained by the rules all the time? Or are we just trying to find some understanding so that we can actually transcend the rules? I think ties very well to what Penrose was saying in that clip that we listened to at the beginning. So thank you for that. I think we, we have just a few minutes remaining. And so I wanted to go to this part here, 416B to D, and just introduce the statement of Socrates. I, I won't have the time, I don't think, to read the whole thing, but I'll start. You know, Socrates makes a statement. It seems to me that the giver of names reviles everything that hinders or restrains the flowing of the things that are. So again, the the theory that we name things based on the motions or the flow of things. Then he talks about beautiful, kalon in the Greek, translates as fine or beautiful. And he says, to name things, kalun, is to perform beautiful, kalon, works. So he's trying to connect the naming of things with beauty. Then he goes on to say, and we say that it is thought that does this. Hermogenes says, certainly. Socrates says, Therefore, wisdom, in Greek phronesis, is correctly given the name kalon, which means beautiful, since it performs the works that we say are beautiful and welcome as such. That was kind of an interesting use of the, uh, or tying wisdom to beauty. Uh, and again, it may be a stretch the way he's, he's doing it here. But, and then he goes on, there's another section that I highlighted here, 417a to c. At 417a, he says, in light of the previous investigations, you should now be able to explain sumpheron, which is uh, in English advantageous for, your, for yourself, since it is obviously a close relative of episteme, which is English in English as knowledge. It expresses the fact that what is advantageous is nothing other than the movement, which in Greek is phora, of the soul in accord with the movement of things. And I thought it would be interesting to just comment on that briefly, that if the soul is what is doing the observation of things and the things that it's observing are in motion, the soul's motion has to follow the motion of the things that, that it's observing. So observer and observed need to be in some sort of harmony of motion for the observation to be complete, to make a complete account of the reasons why, which is, as uh, as Socrates said in the Mino, is knowledge. So I wanted to bring those ideas out there again to tie this whole discussion of motion to the idea of knowledge. So Darren, you, your hand is up. So regarding the passage you read on Kalon, um, I think there's some relevance there to maybe to tie <laughs> the discussion back to some of those things that were raised earlier about the discussion earlier about being and becoming and uh, its relation to language and how we can know things and what it is we know and how we get knowledge started. So all those questions. JK said something earlier about how uh, memory plays a role in knowledge and understanding and knowing. But I think he was trying to, he said it was hard to understand, like, how could there, like, what is what is it that stands outside of the becoming whether there's anything like that being and he said it was hard to imagine so i i think what the passage is relevant to this so he says actually so i'm just gonna read the 
couple of lines above what you said. So Socrates says, regarding the word kalon, in my view, this name derives from a sort of thought. Hermogenes, what do you mean? Socrates says, tell me, what caused each of the things that are to be called by a name? Isn't it whatever gave them their names? Hermogenes says, certainly. And I'm just repeating here what uh, James Reed just read. Socrates says, and wasn't it thought, whether divine or human or both, that did this? Yes, Socrates. And isn't what originally named them the same as what names them now? That is to say, thought. So, like, this is such an interesting part because he's bringing the idea that names aren't just about what is purported to, you know, be the things that we perceive or the nature of things, whether like her mod, according on the Heraclitus view, it's all, it's all in flux. The suggestion is quite direct here is that like both the name and the thing itself actually comes from thought. And as we saw earlier, the origin of the word for name is something to be searched for. The suggestion like in this passage is that, is that these objects that we, and these names begin in us actually. <laughs> which is as an epistemological proposition is fascinating. It, it's, it's suggesting there is something in human thought where knowledge begins, that it's not just purely, you know, the flux out there and it's whatever we perceive or remember from that, because even the problem of memory is not final, right? Because what are we remembering? If, the, if it's all flux, like what is it we remember? It's just more flux. Like if we remember, it seems like we we're remembering things. But where, did, where is this origin of the things? And the suggestion in this passage that you just brought, James, brought up um, is that somehow are both related to thought. So mm -hmm. he says again, what caused each of the things that are to be called by a name? Apparently thought. And <laughs> isn't it whatever gave them their names? Again, it's thought. So it's so interesting that it's like all thought. Uh, it, it can't just be all in the world. And even the idea of difference. I, th I think we saw this in a sophist comes from, it's not just like there, there, there's difference in the world and we just sort of like, like a photocopier, we just copy in our minds, but no, the difference is it's something that maybe is something like an idea that is what we bring to the possibility of knowing it's not, it can't just be all flux or all perception. But anyway, I just want to draw that connection to, from what you just read to what was discussed earlier. And that ties, I think, to the first little bit of quote that I mentioned when we started talking about these sections, the, the various sections of this dialogue, 401a to b, when Socrates says, when they were talking about the origin of the names of gods, he says, we don't regard ourselves as worthy to conduct an investigation into the nature of the gods, but rather we are going to investigate human beings. He says, but rather human beings and the beliefs they had in giving the gods their names. So the, I think the whole purpose is to explore the beliefs that underlie the names that are applied to things. And so it's really, I think, a very deep investigation into our mode of thought. As you said, uh, thought yeah. is so interesting. Yeah. Make yeah. a quick comment. I know we're over yeah. time. I want to make a quick comment about that. The passage you just uh, brought up at the end um, about this uh, Kalan, I, I think it goes even deeper than that, though, because he, there earlier he was talking about our beliefs about the gods and things and how the etymologies reflect those beliefs rather than those things themselves. But here, in it, when, it, when Socrates asks, what caused each of the things are to be called by a name? Isn't it whatever gave them their names? Like the suggestion here is going even deeper. It's not about our beliefs about things. It's about how things even come into being 
for us to have beliefs about them in the first place. It's, it's mm -hmm. like, it's taking the problem back even further. Like how are things themselves even possible? So mm -hmm. anyway, I just, I just want to make the observation, even deeper metaphysical problem here. Absolutely. I think Plato is really trying to reinforce his, his whole concept of the origin of the universe, the origin of being and becoming, which is really everything. And that ties back, I think, to the Timaeus. Certainly when I think of being and becoming in the context of this dialogue, I think about the Timaeus and, and the construction of the universe, which I think is very is a very consistent theme that follows through all of Plato's dialogues and touches very much on the nature of the forms in the state of being. And certainly the forms are very much present in the background in, in this dialogue. We won't have time this episode, but I think maybe at the beginning of the next episode, I'll pick up on the theme of the good, which I've provided a few quotes at the end of the notes for today's session. I would just highlight one thing, or two, two parts of the quotes here, and this is in 417a to c about the good. And I'll recall what Plato said about the good in the Republic, the form of the good is that which gives truth to the things that are known and the power to know to the knower. That's what he said in the Republic about the good. And he explores that further in this section in the Cradless. He says, because the good penetrates everything, it has the power to regulate everything. And the one who gave it its name named it after this power. So this idea of regulation or again, ruling. And then he goes on in the next part that he speaks, he says, the name giver calls the good by that name because it is the fastest of the things that are. It doesn't allow things to remain at rest or permit their motion to stop, pause, or reach an end. Instead, it always does away with any attempt to let motion end, making it unceasing and immortal. Very interesting thoughts on the nature of the good and how the good ties to the names that we apply to things and the idea that the good is the absolute ultimate in what we're looking for in terms of this ceaselessness and immortality which would exist in the state of being. So I wanted to end with those thoughts about the good because I think we can pick up there in our next episode. So our, our next episode in two weeks, we will finish our discussion of the Cratylus and see what the conclusion is uh, that Socrates reaches at the end of the Cratylus. I think it's very interesting. We'll try to apply that conclusion to our, our own everyday understanding of names. So I want to thank everybody for being part of this great discussion. I think we've had some really interesting ideas here. I'm going to think more about what JK said about memory. I think that's really intriguing and, and how that ties into this dialogue and, and into our greater understanding of things. Certainly, it's a theme that pervades Plato's works, uh, memory is. And so very much look forward to resuming in two weeks. So I'll end the recording now again with thanks for everybody for attending. For those who wish to stay online for an unrecorded uh, half hour discussion of Plato's Cafe on philosophy or Plato or any related topic, uh, more than welcome to do so. And otherwise, look forward to seeing everybody in two weeks. Thanks.